Hello, and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News. If you subscribe to this podcast, and you certainly should subscribe to this podcast, you've probably noticed that we've been doing things a little bit different this week with a little something we've been calling The Stakes After Dark, or SAD. We've been bringing you late-night coverage of the Republican National Convention, and I hope you've been enjoying listening to our punchy nightly missives as much as we've enjoyed recording them. If you haven't taken a listen this week, fear not. Our nightly coverage will continue Monday through Thursday next week as we follow the action when the Democrats head to Philadelphia. For those of you who have had absolutely enough convention talk on this show and every other show, we're here for you too. Right now. Right here. On this, our regular Friday edition of The Stakes, you're going to hear some incredible stories about politics, social justice, and the world outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Believe me, we need the break as much as you do. Coming up this episode, we'll be talking about the murder of Pakistani social media icon Kandil Baloch. We're going to learn about how a group of underground librarians are stocking their shelves with more than just books. And Marcus Ellsworth will bring us a poem about the contributions made by non-white people to civilization as we know it. Steve King, tune right the fuck in. But first, we're going to turn to Julianne Ross, MTV's Deputy Editor of Politics and News, as she fills us in on the singular intersection of Snapchat nudes and political protest that is Tramps Against Trump. Tramps Against Trump is an eye-catching social media campaign where one vote equals one nude. Julianne Ross spoke with the two tramps who started it all. Hello. 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 So you want to introduce yourselves? I am Samantha Jones. And I am Jessica Rabbit. We picked those pseudonyms because uh, we started with Sluts Against Harper. We collaborated with them, um, who did that in Canada, Votes for Nudes campaign, and they all had pop culture icon women as their pseudonyms. So we try to keep that legacy going here in our campaign as well. So how does Tramps Against Trump work? So the concept is after voting, you take a selfie with your I Voted sticker or your Um, voter ballot receipt and you either email it to us or you can send it to us through Snapchat after reviewing it and seeing whether it's a googled image or not we will respond with a nude you can also get involved with us by sending a nude Um, it can be edited or unedited it can have your face it can have whatever you want and with permission we can send it out to people inquiring for nudes or just add it to our social media, use it in whatever way you feel comfortable with. How many requests would you say that you get a day? It depends. So we had the six primaries that happened and that was, we got slammed. That was when we had to take a break afterwards because we were just like, oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) So that was, I mean, hundreds and hundreds for sure. And we're still, I mean, we have different um, platforms for the campaign. So like, on Snapchat, we have 10K plus followers that send in voting selfies mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. respond with a nude if it follows the guidelines, which we're pretty strict about. Email, we probably get, I would say, like 100 a week. Yeah. But that depend- that's like in a lull time. Like right now, people aren't really sending us new like they're not sending us voter receipts so it's more of like inquiries questions press yeah people are literally like how do i vote 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> help people get registered, yeah, like we're the like, basics. Yeah, we're like, like really actually trying to like help people like figure like, it out. Yeah, we're learning a lot too. You know, we're like, oh, what state are you in? Okay, cool. Here's some information. That's mm-hmm. awesome. It's, <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it's really evolved into something where yeah. you're educating people about yeah. how to register and how to get out there. Yeah. I think the platform's evolved in a lot of ways and we're using it to talk about subjects that we care about and we've ha- we have cared about. People also just send us snaps of like whatever, you know. It's cute. It's like interesting. People tell us we get, we've heard so many like moving stories also, which I think is really unexpected. Um, can you can you give an example of a story that you've gotten? Do you want to talk about the grandma who emailed us? The cutest email we ever received. You can even read it. Um, I will read it. I have always considered myself a liberal, open, open-minded person and at my age, grandmother of four, not easy surprised. You ladies and gentlemen and gentle genders have both surprised and delighted me all the while. I was laughing at the idea. The pictures admittedly made me blush, but I couldn't stop smiling. My husband and I applaud your efforts, and I'm wondering, is there anything I can do to support this cause, short of sending a nude selfie? <laughs> I trust <laughs> I trust your ingenious idea combined with your body positivity and anti-Trump message will be just as respectful of my recently discovered modesty. Brilliant. Kudos to you all. So, yeah, that's we were, amazing. Yeah, it was so cute. I wish you would send us a nude too. Like, that would be so tight. Because <laughs> yeah, um, you're, you're very inclusive with yeah, this. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're definitely trying to be, um, try very hard to um, make that hurt. It's actually pretty funny. We've done a little bit of trolling on Twitter because I feel like every press person chooses like a blonde haired, blue eyed, white girl as their kind of like clickbait image. And we keep being like, where are you guys getting these images? Like they're not from you, us. If you look at our Tumblr, it's like Palestinian flags, like, you know, whatever, to trans people, but like whatever. So it's it's been like really interesting to kind of see that as well. That's been hard for us because that's so not what we're trying to put out into the world and yet we can't really control it. And I mean, Instagram really just did not play well with us at all. They shut us down after four days, I think, and then they blocked both of our phone numbers from creating accounts on Instagram. They deleted our second account within four hours with no pictures up on it. And they're not really responding to press about anything that seems legitimate. I mean, they say they took it down because of nudity, but everything was super censored. I have a lot of experience because I'm a social media manager in my personal life and because I'm very naked on the internet in my personal life. So I was shocked. I was very strict about the community standards and guidelines. So we were pretty surprised. It felt like a political move for them, but they Mm -hmm. really won't comment on it. So, you know, whatever. We just had to move on. And, you know, we have a long history with definitely for me of speaking out against how Instagram polices women's bodies on a global scale. so we were kind of like, okay, well, we don't really want to use a platform anyway. That is basically against everything that we're fighting for. But I think it's been fun. I think using this new platform like Snapchat, which has been so traditionally since the founding, sex positive, sex work inclusive. Um, I mean, like literally created to like send nudes. So it, it kind of feels like the perfect platform for yeah. us to interact with. And also... Uh, it's been great because when people are people are actually sending like live selfie Snapchats to us, so they'll disappear, and so we know that they're real and that it's them and that they're doing yeah. that. So that's been that, that's fun. been a problem. People googling um, <laughs> like voting selfies. We've gotten like hundreds of this one blonde girl, like with her I voted sticker, and it's always like. By the way, I am a lesbian and I want a picture of a girl every single time. So they're they're trying to, to scam you. Yeah, <laughs> they're trying to scam us. Yeah, it's funny because uh, we're you know we're not 
we just troll him right back. We have so much fun. We're so <laughs> sassy. I mean, we're like, you know, we've memorized like the top 10 Google searches like by heart. So we'll just like email him back and be like, oh, cute. You know how to use Google too? And they'll laugh back because they, I think they're so like kind of surprised by our sassiness and kind of like how we're just like, you can't troll us. Um, can't troll the, the troll. <laughs> yeah, troll the troll. So What are the actual guidelines? We're pretty strict about it having to be a selfie and the picture, the, the face of the person included in the photo, which is nice because it's like we get to see who's on the other end. It, like it, it includes a little bit of vulnerability for that person. I mean, we're sending them a nude, so it's nice to have like the person's face. And um, there's not so much you can do as far as like taking a photo in the polling station. That's illegal. So the guidelines are either like um, a voter receipt, which they give out in some states, or just an I voted sticker. Yeah, and we don't. We have a zero tolerance policy for harassment or threats. So even if you send us a selfie with your picture and a voter receipt, we've had someone email us like, "If you don't send me a nude, I'm going to write a bad review about you." And when we we're, and we're just like, like, "Bye." We're like, "Bye." We what don't have you? a Yelp page. We don't care <laughs> yeah. about bad reviews. Like, um, so so we have a zero tolerance policy for harassment, threats. Um, have you received a lot of harassment? Yeah. Yeah, I, not as much directly to us. I think a lot of it exists in the comment threads. Um, but yeah, we definitely, people definitely, uh, men think that they can be very manipulative to us. And like, if you don't send me a nude, I'm voting for Trump. And we're like, bye. Like, that's not actually the campaign. You actually have to, it's more about showing up to vote and getting the youth involved in voting, but we can't, it's illegal for us to be like, prove, like show us a picture of your ballot that you didn't vote for Trump. So like the best way to troll us almost is to vote for Trump and still get a nude from us, but um, it's not really a manipulation game. That's not the game we're playing. So anyone who's really participating in that and being like, well, I guess I'm voting for Trump now, you whores, like buy blocked. Like, you know, it's, it doesn't really bother us. We're our own bosses. Mm-hmm. We can do whatever we want and say whatever we want and, um, that's been super really empowering and, and fun and exciting um, and to watch kind of these people interact with us in that way. And, and women reach out to us too and people of all genders reach out to us as well, but it's predominantly a men base who are seeking nudes. Um, we even had a pastor reach out to us from a pastor email. I could not stop. My mom's a pastor. Um, I could not stop laughing and it was like signed like referendum. Like, and I was like, what? I called my mom immediately and was like, mom, you'll never guess who we sent a nude to today. You know, growing up in the Christian church and just being like, this is such a suppressed sexual community and just like, I don't know, it was so funny. It was, it's, you know, we just have all walks of life reaching out to us. So, mm-hmm. we, so your mom's a pastor and she's totally like down with this? It's been, I think, a long time coming. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I've been working in the sex world for so, I mean, she's, she's had years to kind of prepare for this. Um, But she, uh, she supports me. She trusts me. You know, it's nice to have her, her support. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's her favorite thing in the world. It's not like she's like, we're going to share that post on her Facebook. But (laughs) I think she, (laughs) I think she trusts me. And I think she trusts, you know, I think she trusts us. And and that's really a powerful thing, whether she, you know, agrees with it or not. Um, Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize and you two have been so firm in this, that this is something that is your choice and it's led by you and it's really inclusive and it's really body positive and sex positive. And I I feel like this is something that could easily be misinterpreted as exploitative. Have you received any comments to that effect? (laughs) Um, We do feel empowered. I mean, it's, it's 
been so fun, you know, and I think a lot of it's been actually really amazing, more so than I see the hate because we don't read the comment sections on anything. We swore off that after the first article, pretty much. We were like, no, good call. (laughs) Yeah, um, we're like not going to do this anymore. But we actually have a lot of women reach out, send us nudes. We've had quite a few sex workers reach out and be stoked that we've even talked about them at all. And I really think because sex workers are already naked on the internet or that kind of internet sex worker, there is kind of that um, interesting dynamic where they they are able to help out with. But even beyond that, how many women just like send us nudes and are like, I would do anything to like keep Trump out of office. So and how many women feel great about this? They feel good. They feel good in their body. They feel good sharing this. They feel empowered. And that's Mm -hmm. been so fun. That's the Mm -hmm. most fun thing to watch rather than like the hate male but you know again we, we would be glad to engage in intellectual debates that are that are deep um, about that kind of oh, feminist yeah. line in the sand but no one's really brought that up that we've seen no directly really to, to us table. yeah no one's really brought that to the table yet so and just to bring it back to politics for a second you mentioned a lot of people you know reaching out to you and they're really excited to support an effort against Trump why yeah. did you decide to I mean the alliteration is great but why did you decide to start this in response to him specifically um he represents everything <sighs> that is against women, against people of color. Um, he, he's. <laughs> I mean, there's so many reasons. So it's so hard to even really begin on this. Like, there's so many different layers. Like, I mean, just his. Oh my gosh, his his Islamophobia is horrifying. Uh, the, a, a main person on our Trumps Against Trump team um, is from a Muslim family. Is a first generation. Um, American and uh, so and actually I would say quite a few people who are with us are definitely in from Muslim families but for reasons of keeping her family and her community safe and the different backlash that she has she's not um, doing any of the public face stuff but she's actually a huge part of our back end work um, and, and our team um, so and that's another thing we kind of have to keep in mind as we move this as these white women why there's people on our team who cannot come forward and be publicly naked and publicly aligned with this even though they are very with it especially from these different Muslim families that would bring a whole different layer with their faces are showing on this campaign so and safety is our most important thing. So you mentioned that you have a favorite hater. <laughs> we do. Um, William on Twitter sent us lots of white trash whores. Is all I see here. LMFAO and sweaty hogs too. Nasty. <laughs> Hashtag Trump will win. And um, here is a person who called us white trash whores. <laughs> I like that you read that in an accent. I'm from Nashville, so maybe it's better that I do that because I like, yeah, exactly. She's Southern love. It's yeah, it's great. Sweaty hogs too nasty. We say that all the time in our personal lives now. That was Jessica Rabbit and Samantha Jones, the masterminds behind Tramps Against Trump, talking to Julianne Ross. Earlier this week, a 26-year-old woman, known as Kondil Baloch, was killed by her brother in her parents' house in a small town in Pakistan. News stories like this one don't always percolate into Western media, but this time it made headlines. Kondil, a social media star in a country unaccustomed to displays of female sexuality, first made waves four years ago with her performance on Pakistan Idol, which, if you've never seen it, it's exactly like American Idol. Kandil wasn't destined to be the next Pakistan idol, but wasn't content to let that slow her quest for fame. 
New York Times senior staff editor Karen Zrake spoke with our producer, Kasia Mihailovich, about Condiel's life and murder. Karen Zrake, senior staff editor at the International Desk of the New York Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So probably with your work, you might have heard of Kendil Baluch before this week. I unfortunately only heard about her upon hearing of her death. But she was a big social media star and a controversial figure in Pakistan and beyond. Can you tell me a bit about her life and how she became so famous? Sure. Um, the woman who was known as Kandil Baloch, that wasn't her birth name. Um, she was actually named Fauzia Azim. She was born in a small town to a pretty humble family. Um, and she basically became famous from posting provocative stuff on the internet. She had tried out for Pakistan Idol and she was rejected from the show and she was let off the stage in tears. Um, But then she kind of made her own online digital persona. She had, she's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and she posted a lot of stuff that was not just provocative, but also kind of questioning authority. She had some sort of female empowerment messages that she posted, and she was sort of irreverent. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in your article that some people called her the Kim Kardashian of Pakistan, right? Mm -hmm. How was she getting these videos out? Was she on a a TV show, or was this all self-made? That was the thing. It was all self-made. She had no notable movie or singing or acting deals or She was a model, but she wasn't in any big ad campaigns. And so she was sort of known or talked about as the Kim Kardashian of Pakistan. But then also a lot of people really took issue with that characterization and said she's nothing like Kim Kardashian because she has no resources. Right. Totally doing this all on her own. She has no handlers. You know, she has no rich family backing her up. She has no TV show. You know, that Kim Kardashian makes sense in the sense that she was just famous because of having this outlandish digital persona. But in every other way, you know, they had, they couldn't be farther apart. Right. So what do we know about Candil's murder almost a week after it's happened? Yeah, well, she, yeah, she definitely, she received a lot of hateful messages. Mm-hmm. Um, all the time um, on social media. Um, and then over the last, I think, month or so, had said that she was getting more threats and wanted to leave the country. Um, mm-hmm. And this was after a controversy involving pictures that she released um, of herself with a well-known cleric who had met her in a hotel room. And he said that he was there to teach her about Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and he I don't, apparently didn't think she was going to release these, you know, pictures that seemed pretty inappropriate, where she's wearing his hat and kind of making faces at the camera. Right. So maybe not so socially, as socially media savvy as she was. Maybe not. Yeah. So that had been a big controversy. She was getting a lot more threats. Um, she said that she had appealed to the authorities for protection, but didn't get any help. Um, At the same time, even if she had gotten help from the authorities, she was at her family home when she was killed by her brother, and she was drugged and strangled in her sleep. Uh, So, also, 
and another element of that might be that as of late, she had been identified in the media before she had only gone by this fake name and right. people didn't know her real name and didn't really know where she was from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her real name and details about a previous marriage and a child that she had had all come out recently. So that could possibly have been a, a reason why her brothers felt more ashamed of her. Could we classify this as an an honor killing, which is something that ha- comes up every once in a while in the media here? It, is this kind of a classic example of that as as far as we know? Yeah, it is. I mean, and you know, a lot of women's advocates take issue with the term honor killing because there's nothing honorable about it, is what they say. And it's a murder, it's a killing, and it shouldn't be excused or softened or made okay just because somebody thinks that they're protecting their family's honor by killing someone. It does um, figure into the Pakistani legal system because there is a, a loophole in murder cases that allows a victim's family to pardon the killer. Um, if they choose to do so. So that is very often how people go free in these so-called honor killings. Um, now, in this case, the state has actually stepped in mm-hmm. um, and said that they won't allow the family to pardon the brothers. You know, I've also seen um, stuff from her parents um, supporting her, actually. I and, saw that you know, too, yeah. Being very upset about her death, so I'm not sure that they would have even wanted to pardon the sons. And how how is her murder understood in in Pakistan, where she had a lot of detractors, a lot of people who are saying that what she was doing was completely inappropriate? Yeah, well, she was a very divisive figure. Um, and so, you know, you see that reflected in the coverage. But there's been a lot of really interesting pieces published in the very vibrant English language media in Pakistan, um, which is only a part of the media landscape, of course, but that's what I've been reading. Um, And there have been a lot of really interesting pieces about her. Um, The case is getting a lot of press. Uh, It was a huge story, for example, on Dawn, which is a big newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a lot of really interesting opinion pieces um, defending her and, and celebrating her for what she was, which was not a role model or a, you know, someone that people necessarily want their daughters to emulate. But it was somebody who was really had a lot of moxie and wasn't afraid to challenge authority, even in the face of these very dire threats. Karen Zrake is a senior staff editor at the International Desk of the New York Times. She spoke to MTV's Kasha Mihailovic about the murder of Pakistani social media figure Kandil Baloch. Storytime Underground is a collective of youth service librarians whose motto is literacy is not a luxury. They recently posted a series of tweets challenging the idea that libraries should be neutral spaces in the age of social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. After all, libraries do a lot more than lend out books these days. In many neighborhoods, libraries act as resource centers for the community doing everything from teaching English classes to providing lunches to teaching people how to use 3D printers. 
Our producer, Mukta Mohan, talked to Corey Eckert, a Joint Chief of Storytime Underground, about the need for libraries to reflect the communities they serve. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly Storytime Underground is? Sure. So um, it started three years ago with a training methodology that I developed for youth services professionals called Guerrilla Storytime, which is um, the idea was kind of like grocery games or something. I don't know. It's like a people come up with challenges and they say, how do you do this? And then someone does it in front of them. So it's a way to learn from your peers rather than watching a YouTube video or reading a blog post about how you would do something. Um, So it's a way for people to learn new skills from each other. Uh, It got a huge response uh, within the community, the library community. And so we decided to start a website and a Facebook group. We really wanted it to be an advocacy piece for youth services librarianship. And as the years have gone on, it's also taken on some advocacy for the way we think librarianship should work in general. Right. And I've noticed that your Facebook group has thousands of members. Like it really has expanded across the country. It's it's huge. Yeah. Um, and I think we actually have I know we have quite a few Canadians. I think we may have some people from um, other English speaking countries. Like Australia wow. um, have public libraries. So it's, uh, it's over 7000 people right now, I think. Do you find that the challenges that libraries in your state um, are similar to the challenges that libraries across the country or all over the world are facing? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's an idea by people in the middle class and up that we don't really need libraries anymore because everything is going digital. And that really just ignores the role that libraries play for the working poor. So a lot of people can't afford devices. Um, I started my public library career in a place where 35% of the population didn't have electricity or running water. So they didn't have Kindles or iPads because you can't charge an iPad if you run your house on propane. And those kids didn't have books in their home because it wasn't a priority because eating was a priority. Um, And so libraries still play a huge role in terms of literacy for the poor and working class we also are one of the only places that a lot of people can get on the internet and we provide free training for people on how to say, fill out online job applications, which is not an intuitive process. So the library is more needed now in a lot of ways than it's ever been since the recession, especially, but the people in power who don't necessarily know that there are poor people <laughs> or don't always want to think about the, the poor think that we're an obsolete resource. Storytime Underground recently posted a series of tweets addressing the challenges that some libraries are facing for supporting Black Lives Matter. With Black Lives Matter at the forefront of the national conversation, how are some libraries showing solidarity? So some libraries are doing some really great displays, book displays, where they, you know, they put up a big sign that says Black Lives Matter and they pull books by Black authors and, um, you know, fiction and nonfiction and stuff at all reading levels and, and really great ways to showcase some of the literature that they have. And, you know, library social media accounts are tweeting with the hashtag Black Lives Matter to show that they as an institution definitely support it. And um, I know that there are a number of librarians who are getting involved in different 
ways in terms of of trying to make libraries more more a part of the conversation. Libraries are just starting, I think, as as institutions to try to figure out what they can do outside of book displays. But I, but I also think, you know, I've had in Texas people walk into my public library and look at a book display that happens to have a book on it of two boys kissing, not a pride display, just a display of new books. And one of the books had two boys kissing on the cover and had them freak out about how that should never happen in libraries and we should never show that. And we didn't take the book down, obviously. Um, I explained to her that that's not what libraries do. But I think that it may seem like a small thing, but everybody walks into the library. And so for people of color to walk in and see front and center that their their public institution that that's funded by their taxes is supporting their lives and saying that their lives have value and and has their back that actually has makes them feel like the library is a place for them and for people who are maybe in the all lives matter crowd um, they may end up having an angry conversation with their librarian but it may help spark some knowledge or just let them know that the library is a place that's fighting inequality. Yeah, so I think there's this misconception that libraries are supposed to be politically neutral spaces. Where exactly did that come from? Well, there's an idea that I think is true that collections are supposed to have, so a library collection of books is supposed to have material that covers different viewpoints, right? So if I were doing collection development for a public library, especially, I would buy books from anti-vaxxers and pro-vaccine scientists. And I would buy books that claimed that there was no climate change, as well as books that explained climate change. And it doesn't really matter what I as a librarian think is like scientifically accurate or responsible. I would have books on the shelf that allowed people free access to information. Because what I wanna do as a librarian is let people come in, find the material, and make a decision, an informed decision for themselves. So having um, a collection that has balanced viewpoints is not necessarily the same as being neutral. And one of the ways in which that's not neutral is that you know, if you have a collection that has a book about climate change from both sides, that's not going to be balanced because there's a lot more science that says that climate change is real. So like, I can't make there be books that say that science says that there's no climate change because it's not true. That being said, being politically neutral is not the same as having a neutral collection because libraries are more than the collection of books. Also, though, I want to say that if we really are do have a balanced collection, we have to be politically active in terms of things like we need diverse books, which is a big movement, because right now our collections are way whiter than the makeup of the country. And that's because publishing is much whiter than the makeup of the country. So if you look at statistics, the, the number of books, especially children's books, that are written about people of color and published about people of color every year by the major, the big six publishing houses, it's nowhere near the actual demographics of the country. And so I don't have a balanced collection that shows the world that people are actually in. And I don't have a way for people to show up and, and find the information that they're looking for because publishing doesn't allow me to. 
And so if I want to have a balanced collection, in some way I have to become politically active because otherwise I'm just taking what's out there. If I don't, if I don't make my voice heard and say, I want books about African-American kids. I want books about Native American kids that are written by Native Americans. I want books about Latina kids. I want books about gay kids and Latina gay kids and African-American trans kids who have autism. I don't know if I don't say that, I'm not getting any of them. So only a very small percentage of my reading population and service population is going to be shown. And actually, I want to give a shout out. There are a lot of really great publishing reps out there who are working really hard to make a difference, but change is slow in coming. So what are some of the challenges that you face with diversity? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think so... There's a lot of old school idea in publishing that is that a lot of people are pushing back hard on that kids, white kids won't pick up and read or purchase, which is morally important because publishing is a business, purchase books with children of color on the cover. And I hear this from librarians who say, you know, I bought The Crossover, which is an amazing book by Kwame Alexander that won the Newbery Award two years ago. Um, I bought The Crossover, but I don't put it on displays because nobody reads it or because my, my population isn't really into those kinds of books. So publishers and librarians have a false idea that kids won't pick up and read or spend money on a book with a person of color on the cover. The Crossover is an amazing book about basketball and it's about a kid who's dealing with family issues and girls and I have white kids in my really, really, really wealthy private school ask me for it constantly because I started hand selling it to kids and I said, did you know that this book is about a kid who's a basketball player and he has a crush on a girl and, you know, they started (laughs) telling their friends about it. They were like, yeah, I want to read that book. I love basketball. So what kids will read and what their parents think they will read is a, a big gap. And the other thing that we see with that in terms of publishers, so they'll, they'll whitewash covers, they'll publish a book about kids of color, but they'll put a white character on the cover. The other thing that we see is that publishers will publish a book that has a diverse cast of characters, but they'll put the white boy on the cover, even if like a girl is the main character. And they'll blurb it as being about a boy and his girl sidekick, even if the girl is the main character, because they don't think that boys will read books with girls in them. And unfortunately, I think a lot of parents think that's true of their boys, and they won't buy those books for their kids. And librarians who are book talking to kids, to boys, automatically sort of think, oh, this is a girl book, or this is not a boy book, so they don't hype up how great a book it is. Can you talk about the name Storytime Underground? And where exactly did that come from? And what what does it mean? When we first started doing Guerrilla Storytimes, which is this training, one of the ideas, the advocacy piece of it, was that librarians who work with adults, whether it's in um, public libraries or academic libraries or law libraries or you know whatever don't take children's librarians seriously and they think that we just have fun and make crafts and sing songs with kids all day and you know our point was that 
we're bringing in, children's librarians bring in the vast majority of the programming numbers for any public library. Without us, programming statistics would be dire. And um, also a vast majority of the circulation statistics um, that the work we do is is incredibly key and also that it's an incredibly large amount of work. We spend, every children's librarian that I know spends a ton of time reading other children's librarians and, and trying to figure out how to incorporate learning into their programs in a way that's fun and not too much like school. And there's a lot of like research on early childhood brain development that goes into it and we had this idea of it being kind of this grassroots movement. The American Library Association has a phenomenal youth services branch called the Association for Library Services to Children, or ALSC. And they do amazing work, but they do it bureaucratically within the service structure of a really big organization. And we wanted to start something that was grassroots, where we could say things that other people aren't allowed to say, and um, and kind of rile up the people who are tired of waiting for bureaucratic change to happen. And so it was an idea that we were sort of doing this. I don't know if the idea came from kind of like Velvet Underground, but just like that we were doing this sort of like that what we were doing was probably not sanctioned. Right. I mean, just looking at your logo, like it feels kind of subversive. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to say, like, we love ALSC and we're members and we love what they do. We love the American Library Association, but and we understand why they have to politically work with the entire rest of the organization on a national level. But we are on the ground and we can say things that maybe everybody thinks. Not everybody agrees with us, obviously, but we can say things that a lot of people think, but they can't say within the organization. And we can maybe agitate for change in a more grassroots way. That was Corey Eckert, a joint chief of the Youth Librarian Collective, Storytime Underground, in conversation with MTV's Mukta Mohan. Dear Stakes listeners, you are my closest friends in the world, and I have a confession to make. That was a lie, and here's another one. At the top of the show, I told you that we wouldn't be talking about the RNC in Cleveland, and as we draw to a close this week, I have to admit that I have snared you in a web of deceit. You probably heard about some straight-up racist garbage that came out of the mouth of Republican Congressman Steve King of Iowa Monday during an appearance on MSNBC. If not, here's what you need to know. The panel was discussing the visible lack of diversity on the convention floor, and this is what Representative King had to say on the topic. I mean, I'd ask you to go back through history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people that you're talking about? If that, what, Where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? Than white people? Than Western civilization itself that's rooted in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the United States of America, and every place where the footprint of Christianity Africa? settled the world. Asia? That's all of Western civilization. Like we said, trash talk from a trash human. We here at The Stakes believe that this kind of base ugliness is best countered with beauty. We're going to leave you with something beautiful from our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth. Iowa Representative Steve King asked, Where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? 
speaking of whiteness as rightness and the West as the best, forgetting the foundations of today the same way that a son of conquerors forgets the bones under his feet. Sacred geometry born in Hindu faith, exploring the angles of giving everything its place. The dark magic of encircling emptiness in the concept of zero didn't come from the West. Charting stars and calculating spheres was invented while Europe was still nursing fears of falling off the edge of the world. Complex metals were forged by Africans who dreamed up the first steam engines centuries before railroads spanned this continent, tracks laid by the work of Chinese immigrants across a land stolen from native tribes while European nomads also stole their lives, even though the Iroquois helped inspire our constitution, with many united as one being the ideal solution for governing this soon-to-be-conquered landmass. But these are only footnotes in your history class. The first open-heart surgery was completed by black hands, and the capital's streets were laid out by another black man. Then there are the millions of unsung stories of non-whites and non-Westerners building up glory that has been stolen by the writers of history. Which is probably why this is such a mystery to a man who walks with the name of king. Yet he himself is the king of no thing. Whiteness and Westernness alone did not build this. It took a plurality of culture and race to bring us to this time and place where forgetting is a monstrous privilege and survival is an act of knowledge. That was King of Nothing, a poem by Marcus Ellsworth. That does it for us this week, and thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend, and we hope you'll join us Monday night for the next installment of Stakes After Dark. Sad. Be well, friends. Be well. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.